permission given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and John Kahn, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my music heroes. This is The Jake Feinberg Show. Folks, welcome inside the Paris. The Palace, located at 3733 East Broadway. This is a live edition of The Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, which we just heard from Doug Martin, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show, and a host of others. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. So we can be enlightened by cats who are normally uh, working things out and communicating in a language on the bandstand musically. It is a high honor to bring in one of the most decorated studio musicians and leaders uh, of all time, really. Uh, He's been going at this thing at least five decades now. John Tropea, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. How you doing, Jake? How you doing? Hey, man, nice to hear you, man. Nice to hear you. Same here. Same here. You know, uh, I wanted to start by asking you about um, if you could talk to the audience early on in your uh, playing career, even before you were necessarily uh, have, had a multitude of gigs, um, if you could talk about playing in an unamplified setting where maybe the b- upright bass was unamplified and it really helped your ears grow to be able to hear all the instruments. Uh, what I'm getting at is the idea now we are living in this huge amplified situation, huge subwoofers, double bass drums. I can't most of the time even pick out a lot of the music. And for you guys in your generation, you guys were on the bandstand and things were not amplified all the time. And I wanted you to talk about an early time in your career when that played out and your ears grew from it. Well, yeah, I mean, right, you know, I'm a pretty old man here. I started out playing guitar at 12 years old (laughs) and, uh, and you know the only thing that really was amplified in my first couple of bands was my guitar and uh they weren't very big amps they, you know the first band i think was accordion guitar drums and uh saxophone and uh, but more importantly when i went to college of music when i went to berkeley school of music there was nothing amplified everything was except for the guitar of course uh it was a, usually four trumpets uh, three trumpets, four tr- trumpets, three bones or four bones or five saxophones, piano, bass, and drums, and a guitar. And the guitar was like, started to be added into that scene as an electric guitar in the, you know, in, in the 60s. So I, guys like me, we, we heard all the instruments, learning to write, orchestrate. We were really, it was a, you know, first-hand front seat uh uh, with that sound hitting you right in the face, so it was really it was an education. Nowadays, you're using computers and stuff. It's uh, synthesized horns. Although I don't do that with my band. I mean, my my band's totally live. But uh, you try to keep it. I mean, I guess the other thing. Can you? I just want to be clear. The electric guitar in a jazz context. Uh, were you when you said you were you were the only amplified instrument? Were you talking about using an acoustic guitar and then you transitioned to an electric, or was your electric guitar the amplified at that time? 
No, it was always amplified. Unless I was playing with a big band and playing Freddie Green type of uh, <laughs> F-hole guitar. I but then, and, and, and yeah. you know, that's not amplified. Freddie Green, Freddie used to cut through, uh, you know, a 20-piece orchestra. It's, you kind of felt it. Yeah, well, it's funny you, know? you bring that up because I was interviewing Perla on the show last week, and he brought up being seeing Freddie Green with Count Basie, and he, and he said that the drummer was following the rhythm patterns of Freddie Green. So I find it really un- right. it's unbelievable that, that you just dropped that name. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at also is this idea of I've, – I've interviewed John Abercrombie, um, Kenny Burrell. <laughs> I mean, so Pat Martino I've done about five interviews with. And, 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 I, and now I get a chance to talk to you. And it's just so – it's so great because I, I love talking to you, cats about – the idea of drummers who were really not using the bass drums as the as timekeepers at all that they were dancing on the cymbals oftentimes they'd keep time on the cymbals um and they'd use the bass drum maybe for uh, rebound or a little bit of taste but the upper portion of the of the trap set was being used and i was hoping you could talk about especially those r&b bands you mentioned those those frontline horn bands that you were talking about for Four trumpets, bones. Uh, when you were at Berkeley, can you talk about some of the drummers that you really enjoyed to play with because of the fact that they were not overly reliant on the bass drum to keep time? Well, I, I'm not so sure I understand what you mean by not by being relying on bass drums keeping time. I mean, R and B is very heavily rely rel, they rely on the bass drum. Bass drum is definitely a part of the whole kit. Uh, if you want to go before that. Uh, you know, from from the time of Gene Krupa to uh, Buddy Rich, uh, that's that to me. And if I'm understanding you correctly, that to me is more of what you're talking about. I think you're right. Is, no, I, no, you're you're abs- I'm talking about uh, you know Kenny Clark, Max Roach, and then a lot of cats that fell below the not not so necessarily luminary cats, but guys that were they weren't. Today there are double bass drums, and that's the only thing cats use to keep time with. The upper portion of the trap set was very involved. I was born in 78, but if you listen back, you know, to the 50s and 60s when you were coming up, I mean, those cats were dancing on the cymbals. And, you know, I mean, Mike Maynary said he, he, he spent a three-day trip out in uh, Chicago with Buddy Rich. And, and, you know, Buddy didn't – I don't think Buddy played the bass drum for three days, he said. He just played t- time on the cymbals the whole time. I just wanted you to talk about, about that. Well, I, you know, it, it, it was just a sign of the times. I mean, but I, I, one time I saw Buddy Rich open a show. He came out at uh, Carnegie Hall, came out, and he played only cymbals for 15 minutes. Just cymbals. I love it. And, and you, really, you really heard a musical instrument there. It, it, you know, it, it was just, it was, it, it was unbelievable to me. And, I, and at that point, I was already a studio musician. Um, you know, the, the the drummers the the drummers of those days really you could hear the song they were playing when they soloed not that you can't, not that you can't hear it now with guys today you know, guys like gad uh, you know he's 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 just he's the same quality of of those days back in back in the 50s um are you still there I'm just taking it all. Well, what I want to get at is you say you, they were playing the song. You're telling me they were playing melodies, right? I mean, you could really feel the melodies from the cymbal work. You could feel the, you could feel them. It's so funny that I'm talking about Gad. As soon as I hit the Gad's name, 
Gad is calling me at the same time. And no, because Gad there. is up in Phoenix, and I've been call, trying to get a cup of coffee. I've done two interviews with. I love it. Now this is not. Do, this is there's no coincidences in life. Okay, so just continue on. No, I know. I believe <laughs> it's so funny. He just, he's, going to, he's coming to Japan with my band in the, in uh, May and June. I love it. And uh, <laughs> can you can so you talk funny. can you talk specifically about what Steve does as it relates? Because I, I have a quote here that I that I, I just want you to talk about Steve's feel because you know what he said was he goes all the drummers that I grew up with were were, were playing on the cymbals uh, and I'll get the quote up here. But I'd just like you to talk about. I mean, ultimately he's going to Japan with you. But what do you like most about uh, Gad's time feel and obviously him playing the song on the trap set? Well, it's all all of the above. I mean, he he he. First of all, he's very judicious. He doesn't overplay at all. He, if anything, he underplays. And uh, I mean, we we did a a, a tune. Uh, we did Giant Steps on what, my two albums back, and uh, he it was it was very low key Giant Steps. It was fast, but it was low keyed, and he played mostly no mostly mostly Russians on the thing. So I said to him, I said, Steve, you know. He, you can hit the cymbal once in a while if you want. I don't want to tell you what to play because I love the way he plays. <laughs> <laughs> he was playing so light, and at the just about the last thirty seconds, he hits the, the hi hat cymbal once, and and it was too much level because he's so finesseful, and uh, you know he's that's one of the things about him. Yeah. But when when it, when he hits the drums, I mean a lot of a lot of stuff I do is very light, but then all of a sudden it gets very heavy. And when he hits the drums, he's as hard, he's as hard as anybody else. He's he's just a very judicious drummer, and uh, I'll, I'll you know we we feel we feel the same rhythms together. We came from the same time, we grew up around the same, we developed at the same time. As did a bunch of my friends that that I'm still playing with, the Lou Marini, Steve, uh, Will Lee. Are you still playing with Bones, by the way? I'm actually playing with Bones. Uh, next uh, in, uh, March twenty first to the to the twenty seventh in Germany. He's uh, uh he's uh playing with the Blues Brothers. I play with the Blues. Yeah, Brothers. I know. I noticed that, and I because Bones and I did an epic uh, interview. He was uh, you know coming straight out of straight out of uh, Mississippi. I think it was. He was one of the he was on the Chitlin circuit down there. I you know to me, you guys are the frontline leaders in our society and, 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 you know, you, you improvise and you, you communicate, uh, in a, in the musical language, but, um, you know, you guys are so brilliant, so team oriented, huge ears. This is what Gad said to me in our second interview. He said, I grew up listening to jazz before I was into R and B guys who I listened to when I first started out, we're using symbols all the time. And then this is kind of going to your point here. He goes, I use symbols depending on the kind of music I'm playing. If it's more of a funk, right. if it's more of a funk thing, it might be more of a closed hi-hat. If it's jazz or straight ahead time, I go to the ride symbol. A lot of guys of the bebop era were dot, um, a lot of guys of the bebop era were diehard bebop fans and they didn't like other kinds of music. For one reason or right. another, I was inspired by other kinds of music, groove music, because I love different grooves. I started out playing jazz, and I loved all that, but I was challenged by a simpler kind of music. And then this is the, the pithy line. He goes, simple isn't as simple as you think. And, That's right. You know, and I want, you, right. I want you to riff on this, because when I talked to Abercrombie a while back, you know, he, he had, his first gig was with Johnny Hammond Smith, 
And, uh, you know, he basically said, he goes, if you didn't know how to, if you didn't have rhythm as a guitar player, you couldn't get a gig. And I want you to talk, and can you talk about the importance of rhythm? You know, you can talk about, and we'll get into this later, about people wanking it for 15 or 20 minutes on a solo, a lead solo guitar. But just the idea of rhythm. I just want Tropea's, the the importance of rhythm as a guitar player within an improvisational unit. Uh, It's more important than anything else to me. Uh, playing rhythm is uh, first of all. I'm the most comfortable playing the rhythm. I'm, I, I and second of all, I play. I I play rhythm not so much in patterns, but I play rhythm in patterns as a drummer would play it. If you listen to the way I play rhythm, it's uh, you hear the bass drum on the low strings, and you hear the accents on the on the higher strings. And uh, I mean, I play patterns too when I was doing R and B dates. Sometimes you have to play chicks and you have to play certain patterns. But uh, when you when I solo, like if I break it down between me and the bass player or me and the drummer, I'm basically playing a drum solo with the drummer. Mm-hmm. And 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 the, the tonality is maybe secondary to that in my mind. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question. It doesn't. No, we're, we're we're riffing here. I, and I just think, I, where do you think you you had your best experience? Uh, you know, obviously you started when you were 12, but are you going to, could you point to Berkeley as a time when on the bandstand, when you really developed your rhythm chops and, and got in sync with a drummer? I do. I, actually, I developed rhythm from a very early age, but I really developed it when I went to Berkeley school of music in 64, I, I got up there and I was thrown. Uh, I, I was, uh, my, one of my colleagues was John and We played a lot together. I love it. I love it. And uh, we, there, in those days up in Boston, there was a lot of organ trios. I played with an organ group called Bobby Duke and Accounts, and the Three Degrees had an organ trio backing them up. And my group had a B3 with no bass player. So <laughs> that's when I really developed R&B, R&B comping and jazz comping, rhythm playing. That's when it really took off for me. Uh, Let's go deeper on your your organ trio. So the cat was kicking pedals on the B three. Is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, most of the time that I played in at Berkeley was a uh, left hand bass B three. Right. So was I guess what I'm saying is that rhythm you were able to sync with the drummer, and there was no electric bass player at that time. But I mean, when. Um, can you talk about an experience on the bandstand that when you when it kind of all kind of clicked for you, rhythmically? Well, I, it wasn't so much the drummer, by the way. It was, I mean, I love playing with drums because drums. The first thing in my mind comes is drums, but uh, really syncing up with the left and right hand of the organ, mm. the way the organ plays. You know, Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff. I went to see Jack McDuff my first two months I was at Berkeley. And John, and uh, that's when I first met uh, George Benson. He was uh, 18 years old, and he was a fantastic soloist, and he plays great rhythm too. But I noticed that the way Jack McDuff played rhythm—that's what—that's that, what started me thinking about you know organ trio rhythm guitar players, you know, other than other than like Freddie Green, that kind of comping. And that's where I really took off. And I started my own group with a trio. 
with a actually a quintet, but left hand bass. Who was who was the organ player? Is a, 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 a cat by the name of Bob Hatch. Is he still I around? Seen him in years. I don't know. I, I don't. I came. He came from New Hampshire. He lived in 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 around the around the school Berkeley School of Music. He didn't go to school with me though. But he was a good player, and uh, I played with Lonnie Smith, Dr. Lonnie Smith. He was he's great. Oh my! I've interviewed him twice too. I am infatuated. You you came up at this time, John, where it's like okay, so there was this transition, obviously, from acoustic to electric instrumentation. And also, um, you know, just the, the organ coming out of the church, out of the gospel setting, into the blues and jazz clubs. But um, who was the best organ player that actually was not using his left hand for bass, but actually was kick, kicking pedals and, and keeping the bass? Who was the best? Uh, that you played with? Uh, Lonnie Smith. Dr. Lonnie Smith. So did McDuff and, like... Uh, and uh, and those. And they, and they, I didn't play with McDuff. That's let me clarify that. Oh, I know I that. Was very yeah. in, I was very influenced by McDuff. I mean, he, I, he showed me how to rewire my Hammond. I, had a, I bought a Hammond when I was Ber at Berkeley too. Uh, but I did play with Dr. Lonnie Smith, and I played with Jimmy Smith. Those, uh, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Jack McDuff. He, he was the granddaddy. It's like it's to me in my mind between him and Lonnie Smith, and Lonnie Smith's still around. They're a dying breed, man. It's he sends chills up and down my spine when I played with him. I, I, when I, I hear love him. it. What about because this is the, I just I, I I had it. Benson came here for the Jazz Fest uh, in January, third annual in Tucson, and he um uh, he was talking about um, basically he was a singer. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think he's a very good uh, uh, soloist. Uh, I think he's an amazing rhythm player, and he's a great singer. Um, but he said he got humbled in a big way when he went up to see Pat Martino play with Willis Jackson. Was did you did you get a chance to see Pat um, with Willis? Oh yeah, when when. When when uh, when Benson left George when he when Benson left Jack McDuff, Pat Martino took over. That's right. And then I used to I used to go to see him on Lenny's on the Turnpike when when he would pass through town with McDuff. So I was influenced by both of them. Uh, Pat Martino's a bad man too. He's a, he's a bad guitar player. I'm, you know he's he's just one of the top. But you know what's funny to me is that. And, is George Benson saying he was humbled when he sees Pat Martino, uh, and and George is George is aware of every guitar player. He's he's very, he's a very studious guitarist, but he's also one of the best in the world, in my opinion, especially solely. And so and so is Pat Martino. It's like the, the best of the best being humbled by each other, <laughs> and that's the way we were in the studios too. All the guitar players that I played with, we would there was nobody with a big head. We were just sitting around, happy to be there, getting getting things from each other on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it's it's Joe Beck, it's John Tropea. It, I mean, the list goes Hugh McCracken. Uh, the list goes the list goes on and on and on and on and on, and, and there's just so much spinning around. Um, 
We have a game on this program, John, called Name That Voice. I want you to listen to this voice. I also want you to listen to, the, to what he's talking about, and then we'll come back and break it down, okay? Okay. Began in uh, looping, um, where they would, you know, just sit and basically, you know, get high. Yeah, no, I just, <laughs> exactly. Was, and we'd play a gig, and they'd record it, you know, and Jeremy sometimes would come, uh, Jeremy Steig, uh, but often um, not. It would just be Warren and Warren and uh, and Donald up at his house in the Bronx, and and they'd sit there for hours. I mean, like days, and just uh, going through tapes of gigs that we had done that we had recorded. And I'd fall by, and we'd all participate, and sort of we just cut up these tapes. And say, yeah, this would this could work with this. This could work with that. And most of it was sort of like helter skelter, but it turned out. <clears throat> they were, they turned out to be very interesting loops, and and while we were playing, um, Jeremy was you know a fantastic artist you know and cartoonist. Oh yeah, well his dad lived on his dad's books too. So, so he you know while we play, he'd have this sort of a a a, sh- a coloring sheet, and as he as we were playing, he'd be drawing, oh, and slowly so cool. these these beautiful drawings of his would just appear you know on a screen like a silk screen and they just would move up as we you know we play and so we were we were experimenting experimenting early on i mean this when i <clears throat> when i basically uh used pickups on the on the on the bars of my vibraphone so that i could go through wawa pedals well you just gave it away it's mike Benera. <laughs> i just i'm so bummed that 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 was were you did you know I'm, it before he said that or no I, no, I knew it was, I knew it was Mike, but I. I, I, it was, <laughs> I know. I, 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 I was. I, I, my engineer. I. I he, he. We brought it down too late. Uh, so yeah, that was main Um It sounds like Ari with a cold, though. <laughs> <laughs> he might have been. I think he was suffering. No, you know what's funny? You are. Your ears are incredible because I think we had a. We had that he was coming. He was coming off of a serious flu, so he was a little under the weather. You're on fire. Yeah, he sounds. Sounds deeper than uh, Mike is a little higher voice than that normally. Well, we, we that was only ten minutes into our hour long trip, so I just what I'm getting at is I want to know about the experimentation from Tropea as it relates to music concrete t- looping and also the kind of organic creation of music. As far as I'm concerned. That's why the vocabulary of music was growing so incredibly strong. Obviously, there was a live touring circuit, but you guys, as a community, I mean, he was talking about Warren Bernhardt, another legendary studio cat, uh, Donald McDonald, yeah. and then Jeremy Steig, not even playing, just showing up with, uh, uh, like, doing what would be considered in today's world a laser light show, but with painting. And I just wanted you to, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, experience you had with some of your brothers and sisters, uh, either when you moved to New York or in Boston, or that organic creation where it really wasn't about perfection or being super tight, but it was more about coming up with new stuff. Yeah, there was also, it was that, and there was... Com- Playing with guys that have, that was exceptionally great groove players, and uh, you know, like Purdy Bert, and 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 Steve, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it wasn't that it was perfect, but they played pretty perfectly, and and you know, coming from coming from playing live in Boston, and even before that, when I was in high school, I always wanted to be a studio musician. 
but I didn't play in the studio that much before I went to Berkeley. When I got to Berkeley, I honed more my live playing, playing R&B. When I got to New York, that's when I really sat looking at Bernard Purdy, uh, a whole host of Herbie Lavelle, a whole host of funky drummers and and bass players. You know, uh, Jerry Jamat, uh, Russell jo- Russell Russell George, uh, Russell George. Those cats. Oh man, those cats were guys. They didn't learn how to play from a computer. Right. They learned how to play by playing, and that's. Not that there's not guys today. They're great guys, young guys, that are still doing it that way. But there was, you know, when I went to Berkeley, the extent of of uh, high tech was we had a room of electric pianos, Fender Fender Rhodes pianos, and the high tech, the epitome of high tech is everybody had headphones. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> So <laughs> now yeah. forget it. Yeah. Other animal, you know. But that's what developed everybody. Everybody got better by playing with great players. Whatever I lacked as a guitarist, or uh, I felt like I got more meticulous in the studio because I was playing next to guys that had done it long before I did, like Tony Matola, Vinnie Bell, uh, McCracken was there before me. Everett Barksdale. Uh, Barksdale, I love Barksdale. Barksdale's, and Barksdale could play like... How do you account for the fact that these cats... Uh, this is really important, John, and and not and maybe self-evident to you because you grew up in that time, but for my generation as a Gen Xer, the millennials, and as we move forward, my whole show for six years has been dedicated to building a bridge to future understanding of music. How did those cats... Because they were human beings, and like you just said, you said Gad, Purdy, Lavelle, they were close to perfect. How is having a funky, near-perfect human being drummer allow for the elasticity or vocabulary of music to grow? Well, it just grew by virtue of the fact that you you weren't fighting anything that was not good. You weren't fighting a guy who was playing with bad times. You were listening to somebody play well. So you reacted to that, and then and then the song, the music went where it went because it went further because there was nothing to hold it back. There was no flat tire oh. to slow the car. You know what I mean? Everything was like, wow, that's the shit. The guitarist, the first guitarist I played with in the studio at twelve years old. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, Black Cat played played great chicks. Wasn't Jimmy Spool? Wasn't Everett Barksdale? I really need to know uh, this name. Know. I need your memory to come back at some point on this one. I know. Uh, yeah. You know. I am getting. No, you're, yeah, I know. It was you were twelve years old, but still, t- talk about the. He was in the pocket. It was in the pocket. This guy played two and four chicks, and he was the best in New York at doing it. And I sat with him for like two hours one afternoon because I was a kid. He loved me. You know, he saw I had, I had, you know, some promise as a guitarist. And he said, he said, son, let me show you how to do this. You, you, you cup your hand and make believe you're playing two and four on a snare. You know, and, and, and when you come down on the strings, you mute it with the back of your hand, with the palm of your hand. 
and I and I got it. I got it that day. I got it right there that day. And that you know, it's like a million dollar lesson. Whole career. Oh. Every time I had to play, I was confident. I because I learned it for the from the best guy. And I can't remember his name. No, it's, it's, it's so, so you you were. Can you talk about like um, so you had you know? I talked. His name to, is Carl Lynch. Say again. Carl Lynch. Carl Lynch. Lynch. And you said that he taught you chicks, two and four chicks. What is that? Is that it? Is that what you said? Well, he, to, he played a, a lot of stuff on the guitar. He was an R and B guitar player, but you know, uh, like playing two and four on a snare. Sure. Sometimes the guitar will do. The guitar will do that many times. And, but he had such a snap in the way he did it. You just didn't do two and four. You really you made a sound out of it. And he was the best at it. I mean, ask, ask Spinoza uh, if uh, if Huey was around, he'd say the same thing. I'm sure I'm sure Huey learned it from him, too, because Huey was about four years before me. And that's when Carl was like, Carl was the 60s and the 50s. He played. He played a lot with uh, with uh, uh, Gary Chester Sr. guys like that, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli guys like that. Absolutely. Well, right. no. I mean, I I would like to know. I mean, when you were in the studio at twelve, um, if you were doing jingles or you were doing game shows or cutting studio sessions. Were you able to go out at night and get stuff out of your system on the bandstand, or were you going to the peanut gallery and like watching cats? No, I'm, I think I, I think I misled you. I, my first, my first day in the studio was not as a studio musician. I, I had, uh, uh, I think I may have been twelve or maybe even thirteen. I was in the studio because I was, I wrote a song, and my my father and a guy helped me get musicians, and uh, and I was the, basically the artist. I wasn't really. Do- I didn't do studio work until I got to Boston uh, uh, when I was eighteen. What, what studio uh, did you, you you cut stuff in studios in Boston, or de- you would go to New York? Well, what, what, when I went to Boston, it was sixty four to sixty seven. No, sixty sixty seven, and there was a studio up there called. Uh, uh, I'm stretching you out today. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I had the name right in my head. It's all right. It'll come back. And I, when I say I did studio work, I didn't do that much. Did I? Maybe one or two a month. They, uh, guys knew I, I could read, and I, and I liked, I knew about production and stuff. So uh, it was right, right in back of the Coconut Grove, right in that little space. There was a studio there, and and uh, but I really didn't do studio work until I came back to New York. That's when I started taking off doing that. Yeah, no, I'm looking here. Uh, I again, this is not always the most accurate source, but all music has you on uh, Zulema. Zulema, did you do any? Or Ronnie Foster, Roberta Flack. These are all R and B kind of yeah. '72. Um, you know, because when I, I've interviewed Dick Burke, rest in peace, uh, Gene Perla, Mark Levine, Harvey Mason, Ernie Watts. Now I get Tropea. Uh, you guys were like one of the first generations to go to Berkeley. Now Levine and Perla and Don Elias were in this Latin uh, salsa band. Now you were in with the Three Degrees playing rhythm, and how did you wind up connecting with the rhythm and blues cats? I mean, this to me is absolutely fascinating, essential. Well, I, 
when I first got up to Boston, I knew a lot of songs. I knew I knew the James Brown stuff. Uh, I, I I knew I knew you know I knew bassy stuff too. But I I I was actually gigging with the teachers when they found that I knew all the tunes. Like like Santisi, uh, you were Santisi and stuff like that. I didn't really I didn't gig that much with Santisi, but I got I, I did gigs with. Uh, uh, who's the guy that did did the uh, Tijuana Brass up there? He had a, a Tijuana Brass band. And that, well, obviously, uh, it's not her. You're not talking about Herb, are you? Herb. Well, I studied with Herb. I, I did. I might have done one or two gigs with Herb, but I, I there was another trumpet player I did more stuff with, and it was a bass player that I did more stuff with, upright bass player mm. that did more society gigs. Um, that's. Continue, I, I, I mean, because I mean, I'm just trying to find out about the. I I know jazz workshop. Lenny's on the turnpike, the 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 combat right. the combat zone. I don't know if that was in effect in the '60s, but where were the R and B clubs where you were getting your R and B chops? Yeah, it was the R and B club was an intermission lounge on Washington. It was a bucket of blood. <laughs> there was uh, uh, the one uh, two. There were two clubs in Revere Beach that I played. Sure. The Blue Mirror was an R&B club. Oh, the, uh, I played R&B for three years while I was in Boston. The second year in Boston is when I got the gig with the Three Degrees. And the first year I played with a, a group called Bobby Duke and the Counts. It was an organ trio, and he was a front man. So I played R&B from the minute I got up there. I'm learning how to write jazz and orchestrate jazz and play jazz guitar at the school, but I'm, I'm playing... R&B at night, sometimes seven nights a week in two matinees. That was really my development. That's where I heard Purdy. I heard Purdy when he had his Funky Dunky record. Uh, <laughs> we went to see him. I learned every one of his songs and played them in my band. Then when I, back, when I came back to New York in 1968, I met Purdy with, uh, with, his, uh, with a friend that knew him. And he said, let me introduce you to Purdy. So Purdy says to me, you play guitar, man. You want to do a gig? I said, yeah, of course. And so he says, uh, okay, here it is. Here's the address. Meet me there Saturday at 2 o'clock. It was a high school in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Hubert Laws was on it. Jerry Jermott was on it. Uh, I forget. It was like a four-horn band. Oh, this is I ridiculous. Oh, my God. He hands, me, he, hands the, he hands me the book. On the top of the book, it says, Pretty Purdy, Funky Dunky. I opened the book up, and I, we proceeded to play for high, high school kids. And Purdy's looking at me, and he's like, kept on looking at me, and I'm playing every song. I never turned a page on the book. You'd already memorized them. Yeah, you knew them all. And from that day on, I worked with Purdy for, I put, I, I worked uh, uh, hundreds of gigs with Purdy. Well, maybe not hundreds, you know, that's an exaggeration, but I met, I met, uh, I met Richard T. through Purdy. I wound up playing with his band till the day he died. And uh, I met uh, Gordon Edwards, uh, a bunch of R&B plays that I won. You know, I played on the, I played on uh, the Hustle. Dan McCoy. I worked on a lot of gigs with Dan. Unbelievable! Uh, See, this is exactly the the uh, this is the uh, this is where the rubber meets the road for the Jake Feinberg show, because you were really. I mean, just stepping into, into tomorrow and today, John, it's, I mean, what if you didn't have 
that kind of bandstand experience, that burning experience with Dukes and the Three Degrees, uh, and you were just sort of clustered into academia. I, I point to Kenny Burrell because Burrell and I went around and around for about an hour, and he was very, art- you know, I mean, Kenny Burrell. They were writing, they were writing their own jazz charts. There were no schools, and so you right. you went to Berkeley in its infancy. It's very different now. But the point is that you had all this ability, experiential bandstand ability. Where do you think you honestly would have been? if you didn't have all that live experience and you were just inside academia as so many amazingly beautiful cats are there's so many we have a supply and demand issue now uh, as well but you specifically oh, yeah. you specifically what 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 do you think would have amounted amounted if you didn't have that experience of being seven nights a week burning on the bandstand i i often think of that because i don't uh, you have to you have to you have to look at it this way uh, I, from the age of 12, used to take two tape recorders, mono tape recorders, put them next to each other and, and overdub because I knew that's sort of how Les Paul and Mary Ford did it, only they did it more in line. Hmm. But I was interested in recording. I remember telling my father, I want to be the guy standing next to the artist in the studio and on stage. I don't want to be the artist. I want to be the guy next to the artist. Because I used to watch Elvis and I used to watch... Uh, uh, Ricky Nelson, and there's the other guitar player who just died, uh, who was the real guitar player in the group. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so now I go to Berkeley and I learn. I really hone in on playing live, but all the other things about recording. So you get to, when you get into the studio and you break into studio work as a guitarist and and a rhythm section player. You, you, you kind of get in there and you're the young kid and there's another guitar player, maybe Tony Mottola, maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, Bucky Pizzarelli, and you're the young kid. And the, the reason why I got in and started getting busy, and I think this is the case with most of the cats, uh, uh, Eric Gale, you, uh, Ewan McCracken, certainly uh, David Spinoza, is because you're coming in there and you know the top 40 scene. You know the James Brown records. So now you're coming in with unused new ideas, and that's what they need in the studio, especially from guitar players. They need you to read. They need you to be able to play what they put in front of you. But they also need you to know something that the older guys maybe have gotten away from. You know what I'm saying? I'd like you to keep going. No, what do you you mean they've gotten away from it a little bit? Well, when you first get into the studio, you're coming with a bag full of ideas that you learned from songs that you played live, Top 40. You, you know, uh, if you're doing a jingle, the guy says, can you make this sound like the Beatles? So maybe, you, you know, you, I played Beatles stuff seven nights a week in Boston. Right, right. I, I knew, I knew, oh yeah, I know that. You want something like that, the sound of the guitar on this record? Sure, we can do that. We're guys that have been there for a long time. When you get busy doing studio work, you're not necessarily playing live that much. You're not ne- necessarily learning new songs. You're just playing your craft. So I think that if I hadn't had the live experience, I might not have made it to where I went, where I got to. I think you nailed it. And I also think that uh, you, what you got, I remember my first interview, I've done about four interviews with Cobham so far. And Billy said that just having a deep bag of songs, uh, James Brown, Papa's got a brand new bag, but you guys had a deep 
bag of songs. And so you were very flexible within the studio. And I wonder, because of the stratification of music and the genres and the, and the way, you really came up before genres. I mean, there was no, jazz schools were just in its infancy. I mean, this, this blending of music is intoxicating, but it allow you to be able to go in and be as flexible. Someone said to you, can you play this, you know, you know, this is a little bit odd metered or, you know, you're, you're, you're at a Quincy Jones session and there's Herb Ellis, you, I don't know, there's four cats there. You're finding space for each other. I mean, to me, it, it, it's, it's, I think it's just, it's very hum humbling for me because, you know, somewhere along the line in, in, in our culture, in this country, we've gotten to a point where, in my mind, at 38, musicians for what i remember charlie persip said he goes you know part of the problem is that you know we're always saying yeah we're going to play music man he's like we're not playing anything we're not playing you know playing gives the impression of play, you're just it's not a it's not a profession it's not a profession you don't get paid for it and now you got the right. this younger generation that's like pay to play or pay play for the door i mean the bottom line is those italian bistro gigs bagels and bongos and stuff that put money in people's pockets like yourself and i don't get why all of a sudden we've had this huge paradigm shift to looking at art as unquantifiable which it is but it also there should be some i mean it should be monetary you know that to me is the most concerning part is that you guys what you do you're masters of your craft and you're not playing for free and it, it, it humbles me that we've reached this point now where cats have to not just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you're supposed to really work on your craft when you can't even put food on the table for your kids. No, it's a big problem. It, it, and it always was, but it's even, to me, it's even a bigger problem now. You can't go into a club without the club owner saying, how many people can you bring in? They're, they're totally divorced with, from, from developing a crowd for you. Now it's how many, what's the crowd that you bring in? Right. You know, and uh, it's, I, I know a lot of young guitar players, great, wonderful players, that they didn't have the luxury that we had in the 70s of live playing. You know, I was going to New York every day and sitting next to five different guitar players in three days. Sometimes it was four dates a day. I was sitting, uh, when I first started doing dates, the dates were on... Uh, actually, first date I did was on mono, but this cut the film till '67. It was they just came in with eight track, right? And sitting there, three guitar players, full rhythm section, two key keyboards sometimes, strings and horns live. Now for me that was great because I'm coming off Berkeley and I'm seeing wow this is the stuff. This is what I studied at Berkeley, so I immediately start writing arrangements for some people. But then that. At the 70s, that stopped when they came in with the 16 and 24 track. Now they were doing rhythm section and then bring the, bring the horns and strings. So the 70s was another animal. Well, we're not, we're, we're, we're not, yeah, we're not, we are marinating with John Trope here on the Jake Feinberg show. And, and I just, I want to put a button on the early 60s because I really want to hear it from you. Uh, you know, I, talking to Jimmy Cobb before he left Train's band. Train, Coltrane had started in that early 60s period uh, doing very s modal jazz at that time. And, and Jimmy Cobb said that 
women would stand up and start screaming and say, make him stop, make him stop. You know, it was just, it was this, for, for a lot of people and journalists like myself, I, I hope I wouldn't have characterized it, but they called it hate music. And I really wanted to know from your point of view about if you really were able to tap into that, if you saw Train live and what that experience was like for you. And because most of the cast that I talked to thought it was just love, that he was channeling love. But I just wanted to know if you had had a chance to see Train during that time because it seemed like it got mischaracterized as he was angry or it was this angry black rage when in fact it was (laughs) more love. Yeah, I, well, I, was, I, I did see Train. I saw Train th- uh, two or three times. But you have to remember, when I started out in the early 60s, I was playing guitar, taking three lessons a week in New York. And I wasn't playing... I was uh, really influenced by Johnny Smith and Louis Bonfart. So I wasn't really listening to that much jazz, that heavier jazz. When I went to Berkeley is when I started to listen to jazz. And, of course, R&B was my thing. But I, I went to the jazz workshop and saw Coltrane my first, actually the first three months I was at Berkeley. And I have to say, I really didn't understand it. I didn't think it was hate music, though. I said to myself, you know, he's doing something you don't know. You better find out what he's doing. So I had to educate myself. Then I went to see him again the second time he came about six months later. And I started stu- studying modal stuff and listening to him. And he watched with my in my band we had a band together well you so Ernie, wait, wait, who was in that that is so heady what who's who was in that band uh, it was me ernie watts on tenor i had another tenor player who i don't remember he was a local cat yeah uh guitar guitar no bass drums and two two singers uh and that's when bob hatch was on on the on the b3 right so I, being around Ernie was invaluable because he, 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 he played so much more jazz than I did at that time. He was an accomplished jazz player at 18. And uh, so when I went back to see Coltrane the second time at the jazz workshop, I came in and really understood and appreciated that, yeah, you're right, it was, it was love. It, was, it had nothing to do with hate. It, it was so... It was so deep, and I'm so happy to be able to to understand it. Not that I played like that. No, not at all. Did you? I just want to be clear. Did did, did Watts? How did Watts help you become more understanding of that music? Would you give Ernie a lot of credit because you said the first time you went to see Train, you did, did not get it. Uh, did I didn't. I, I didn't understand the free jazz right. as, and at that point, I was still like. Uh, you know, one six two five, and you're taking out chorus, and uh, you know uh, you, you you could play free, but you're playing free on a Dorian mode. But Coltrane took that to the nth degree. You know what I'm saying? And it was absolutely free stuff. And I was I didn't come from free. I came from you know playing top forty songs, and and uh, or or or, or uh, in the you know when I first started playing in sock hops and and little things that. 13, 14 years old, we were playing out of the number two fake book, Standards. So there wasn't anything free about it. You know what I mean? It was structured music. So, uh, and Ernie, Ernie, Ernie was, again, it's another example of, you know, you know, remember when your father and mother said to you years ago, hang around with people that are better than you. (laughs) If you don't, they'll bring you down. Well, of course. Yeah, right. I, I dig. It's the same thing in music. 
you hang around with a guy like, like Ernie Watts or anybody of anybody that we're talking about, and unless you work at it to not get better, you're going to get better. And if, and I I used to sit there and say, "Oh, what's he doing that I can learn? Wow, that's great!" And I'd go home and I'd try to, you know, if it was a rhythm or playing with Purdy, I would say, "What makes him? What's making him so special?" There's a lot of great drummers, but he's got something different. And he did, of course, he did. Same thing with Steve. Same same thing with Sean Belton. There's wonderful drummers, and I could name fifty of them, and they're all great. But there's drummers that come up that have something just a little bit different. Like Sean Pelton. You know Sean? Sure. You know sure, Pelton. sure, sure. Sean Pelton has this New Orleans thing, and he takes he takes songs from my band, arrangements that I've done, and I've played with, you know, from Steve Gadd, Rick Murata, and he'll take, take it and have a certain little twist on it that just sends chills up my spine. Same thing with when... When uh, when uh, Murata plays it, same thing when when Purdy plays it. Again, but then there were a lot of drums that just played great anyway. But there's a little pizzazz that comes out of certain guys, or they change up. Purdy changed the business when he came in. <laughs> in my no, I think I think I think you're 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 riffing um, really well. Uh, we got a. We're having some telepathic stuff today. Gad already called Tropea while we were talking about Steve Gad. You just mentioned this cat uh, twice. Uh, again, we're going to go back to name that voice. Again, listen to the content as well, and then we'll break it down. Okay. Grew up together, and we were in bands together. And if I wasn't playing in Brethren or Johnny Winter or Edgar Winter's band or, or any of those kind of things, <laughs> we were then we were doing gigs at Mikel's and other clubs with Spinoza and those kind of bands. And um, Dave, those bands we were playing at Mikel's and stuff, there was a ton of just really great groove and improv stuff where we would play the head, you know. Uh, somebody would write a song and it would be Trope or, or um, Leon Pendarvis right. or Spinoza would write something that was just brilliant and we would play the head we played a couple of times and then we'd go you know it'd be Pendarvis would blow or or Spinoza would blow or somebody would start Will Lee would start going off and playing whatever he was doing or Chuck Rainey or whoever it was that was playing with us at the time with Tony Levin and that was I really I liked that kind of stuff and what I liked about it was that it didn't last too long. Like, sometimes we'd for, go back to Bitches Brew, go back to Miles. Sometimes when you go and you listen to them play ahead and then do 15 minutes of crazy riffing, I, I'm thinking that you're saying everything you say in a minute or two. That's really, I get the conversation. I understand. That's great. Now let's hear what this guy has to say. And then that guy has to say, give them each a minute, and then let's move on to the next song and see what they have to say there. I didn't. I didn't like when songs lasted fifteen minutes. Sometimes you go to Bitches Brew, you'd see Miles at Bitches Brew. They'd be. They'd do in an hour and a half. They'd do two tunes. Right. Right. No, you're nailing. All right. Well, you obviously identified the. He never. Yeah. He, he, he never liked. He never liked long solos. The Murata. Dude, he went off on this story uh, about this cat in L.A. who who was an accomplished studio guitarist and a great player. 
And the dude wanted to play live gigs with Murata. And Rick's like, that's fine, but let's cut the songs down so that in an hour we can play 20 songs instead of three songs. So they had these rehearsals and everything was going well and Murata was feeling great and the guitar player was cutting his solos way down and it just was going to be electric and they get on the bandstand and the first tune they play and the, the guy goes off for 15, 20 minutes and uh, Murata's yelling at him, stop, 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 you know. So he, you know, I, you know, John, I want you to talk to, to everybody around the world listening and who will eventually hear this interview. How... What's your philosophy on saying what you need to say and being able to stretch out, but knowing it at a certain point when you're repeating themes or when it's just time that you said your piece? I mean, how did that, how did you cultivate that skill? Because as I've interviewed 700 plus cats, I've learned that it's, a, it's you have to cultivate it. And I just want you to talk about it from your own perspective. Well, you know, look, I, I, I have had times where I played a solo in, you know, three choruses and felt great. And then there's times where I was still searching and I played 20 choruses. I don't, I don't do it as much anymore. Uh, I think it's part of, sometimes guys, when, you, when you're developing as a soloist, you're going to take it too far sometimes. Drummers don't like that, you know. Uh, the, the best thing to do is to try to say it, to try to get your head into a, a point where you you say what you need to say and, and, and don't make it run on. It's like, it's the difference between me explaining to you what I had for dinner last night in five minutes or explaining <laughs> to you what I had for dinner last night in one minute. That's all it is. And sometimes we just keep on searching. It's very rare that if you play a five-minute solo that it's great from top to bottom. You're not hitting the sweet spot somewhere. But that's music, and that's what's great about it. I love it both ways, you know. I mean, there's, there's there's something good about not having long solos because you can play more songs. Like when I go to Japan, we're, we're going to play we're going to play fifty fifty minute sets, which always wind up to be an hour ten minutes. It's the two sets a night, so you gotta you gotta kind of cut the solos back. You gotta be cognizant. You don't want to just play two songs or three songs in one set. It's just not right. Did did Murata did Murata get ever get after you about you know playing a fifteen minute solo? Yeah, way way back, <laughs> way back when we were with Diodato, he was on the first band with me, uh, we, and we were at the jazz workshop. In fact, you were Murata was on. I know. I see. That's we're going to have to pick up part two on. I want to know about the Brazilian stuff, but Murata was on drums with Diodato at the workshop. Oh yeah, yeah. When 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 I I played, I don't know if you you know I played on two thousand and one. Uh, well, no, I know you played on those studio albums, but I didn't. I I just to me, I didn't have any idea that Murata was on that. Oh no, when the when the record was a hit, uh, we went on the road. We were, we were on the road every weekend, going all over the country, playing with Diodato. and uh, I was you know he he played. He was the drummer. Uh, a friend of mine, John Gelino, played bass. And uh, it was the Breck Brothers, Four Horn, Breck Brothers, Joe Templey, and uh, a trumpet, trumpet, trump, trombone player from Berkeley that I went to school with, Sam, Sam Burgess, hmm. and Diodato, of course. So we played, that's, that's, really, that's really when I got close to Murata. And then, then when I did my first al album in 74, uh, I don't know if you know it, but my first, first three albums had double drummers. It was Rick Murata and Steve Gadd. 
You had double. Okay. Oh my. Um. Why are you dropping this? This is on. You had double drums at the same time, right? I mean, you're playing. They were. Yeah. Tropea, yeah, that's a because that, I mean, that was that was that was Joe Cocker with Keltner and 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 Jim Gordon, the Dead, the Almonds, I, the double drums to me again is another missing link. Uh, again, a lot of cats, would, a lot of cats would say that they can. Had, yeah, go ahead. I had double drums before stuff had double drums. <laughs> <laughs> how? But play, I mean, did, did Mar- how did, did did who was able to Keltner? I, I've, t- I've, t- I've done a few interviews with Jimmy Keltner, and uh, he talked about. Uh, you know, he did double. Dr- John Clemmer had him come into the studio with Shelly Mann and uh, Keltner. He, a couple of constant throb is the name of the album. This is a early right around Tropea time in the early 70s. But he said, you know, as a drummer, when you're playing in the double drum setting, you could never you always feel like you have to sort of only do half of, of what you can do. Uh, because the other guys keep in time. How did you regular? How did you work that? I mean, both those guys are pretty selfless. But how did those guys work in tandem together? You ask if you ask Steve Gadd or you ask ask Marotta what it was like for them to to, to play together. As far as I'm concerned, and with all due respect to all the other guys that you're talking about, I love them all. They're great drummers. Mm-hmm. There's nobody played like Rick and Steve, and I wish that I had I wish that I had all of the uh, basic tracks that I used to take home after we recorded the tracks. If I had them today, I could sell them and make a educational record out of them. These guys, they, it, it wasn't that they were playing a half a set of drums. It was stereo bass drums, too. Two full sets. And they looked at each other. They'd start a film, and the one would start a film, the other guy would finish the film. Mm. But nothing ever worked out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard my first record. If you listen to The Brat, the introduction of The Brat, mm-hmm. or, or Muff, or Tambourine, the t- fills that they did were spontaneous and it was brilliant. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I've, I've been trying to work out a deal where we could go to Japan and do a trope band, a, original trope band a reunion, because it still would sound great today. The music was timeless. Can I those ask, guys. Yeah, no, I wonder. This is very important. So the educational tape aside, do you think that those that early album, the original Tropea album, does justice to how uh, how awesome their their call and response and filling was or did it, did it get lost in that mix it got lost in the mix only because it got it, it, to a certain extent extent it got lost in the mix because uh, of the technology we had to roll off 40 cycles because the record was a little too long and and because i had this, the bass drums in stereo because i wanted everybody to know those are two drummers playing you know uh, and, and, and it just wasn't as punchy as if it were recorded today on CD. Now, you can get the record on CD, and I did remaster it. But if I had made the record today, it would have been a different sound. I would have really been able to punch it. We did that record on 16 track. We had to bounce down the overheads, the stereo image. So there was a lot of technical things that, that I couldn't. It just wound up not being as punchy. That was a very good question you just asked. Because a lot of people who didn't know music said, something sounds funny. Is there more than one drummer on there? <laughs> the guys, that, the guys that, that, you know, my friends heard it. He said, wow, I love Rick and Steve playing together. They immediately knew it was two drummers. Wow. Tropea, uh, can we do set two before you, uh, before you head off overseas? I'd love, we got more to do. 
Oh yeah, sure. You want to you want to set up a time? Yeah, no, we will. I, I just I I I got another guest on the line, so I'll I'll call, I'll email you later. But we'll figure it out. I had such a ball with you, man. It was such a great time. Same here, man. I had a, a great time talking to you. It's, it's it's always good to try to put things in in, in order. You know about the past. Well, you know so what I, it is. It, it, this is about. This is not about preservation. This is merely about promotion, so that my daughters and future generations understand how real holistic music is made. When you talk to Gad, you tell him I'm coming up for coffee. We, we're going to hang because I'm in Tucson. He's in Phoenix, all right? Okay. You got it. Love always, man. Talk to you soon, man. Okay. Thanks, Jake. Cheers, John. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just another one of the books, John Tropea, legendary guitar player, and we'll be right back on the other side with a legendary saxophonist, R&B funk wizard, Bobby Spencer. 